It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. And welcome to Moment of Truth. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. My first guest this morning is on the line from Scarborough. And he is, in fact, the NDP candidate for Scarborough West. His name is Keith McGrady, and he is an educator who has fought for decades to support vulnerable children and adults. As a past supervisor at the Scarborough Child and Family Life Centre, Keith knows it makes a difference when governments invest in families. That's an interesting comment to make. Now, as executive director of the Two-Spirited People of the First Nations, Keith continues his community-building work with education and health initiatives to develop a strong strong Two-Spirit community. Hi, Keith, and welcome to the show. All right. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate taking the time out to talk to me. So listen, it's an interesting position you've got yourself into, I think, with running for NDP as well as uh, as the executive director for uh, Two-Spirited People and the First Nations. Um, how long How long have you been uh, a, a candidate and an NDP uh, supporter? Uh, well, I became a candidate officially uh, a few months ago uh, when we had the nomination meeting. Um, I was uh, have always been an NDP supporter back even when my uh, father was still alive. Uh, he really taught me the values of the party and also of, you know, the things that are important. Um, you know, he worked in the pulp and paper industry, uh, was, you know, a proud union member and um, very much was someone out there campaigning and canvassing as well. I remember um, seeing a lot of the signs and as I'm learning about the history of the NDP, to be very proud that, you know, I've been um, been there alongside my father in the past. Mm. And, and what is it about the NDP uh, as opposed to other parties that attracted you? Well, I think um, the NDP really stands for people, um, you know, people like myself uh, and other people that I've been working with my whole career, uh, everyday people, people who maybe don't have the same opportunities as everyone else. Um, I think that uh, the NDP really has a uh, good attitude about putting people first versus um, other priorities, and I think that's what really drew me to them and kept me um, supporting them regardless of you know, what the outcome has been. Mm. Uh, Keith, uh, is it my understanding you're you're a Métis? Is that correct? No, I'm Ojibwe and Cree. I'm from a place called Bizotwabek, Zalgin, and Nishnabek. It's in north of Thunder Bay. I was raised in the area there until I grew, went to college, okay. university. Uh, great. So now again, you know, looking at at the line of work that you've chosen to get into, uh, you've worked uh, and and fought. It says for decades to support vulnerable children and adults. Can you explain that a little more? What does that What does that mean? What What got you attracted, and what were you actually doing? Well, I mean, you know, everyone has a story, and my story basically is, um, you know, I had a lot of, um, you know, traumas as a child and things that have happened to me that, you know, weren't the most positive experiences, and. Uh, at a really young age, in my, uh, as soon as I hit 20, I was interested in becoming a foster parent because I wanted to, you know, protect children. And that was what I, the only thing that I could see how, um, you know, children who are going into care and not having uh, people to support them and families who have the, the skills to make sure that they're safe. Um, I started, I became a foster parent. Uh, and through that, I realized I didn't have all the skills that I needed to be able to support families. So I took uh, early childhood education and became an early child educator um, and worked in child care uh, for many, many years. And then my 
portfolio basically kept expanding to things that included um, the whole family, you know. And when I say family, I don't necessarily mean, you know, the, the, the traditional mother and father and child. I mean, whoever the people define their family is. And, you know, there's a lot of families that uh, make up very diverse people and i and i support them those families too and as i worked alongside the community um you know as a servant of the community i really saw that you know it could be very impactful all the programs and things especially when you look at it in very holistic ways and not just servicing one individual need mm, interesting and, and that's that that was very uh uh, uh Wonderful of you, I guess, is the word I'm looking for to to uh, look at uh, at becoming a foster parent. That takes a uh, that takes a a, um, a lot of uh, dedication and a lot of work. And, and and then you saw, as you pointed out, you you were missing some of the tools, and you went and and uh, further became educated on those things so that you could have more knowledge and a more understanding of that. Uh, did that then lead you into this uh, supervisory position at the Scarborough Child and Family Life Center? Is, is what was the? How did you get into that? Well, definitely. I worked uh, up in Northern Ontario at a small uh, family development center. Um, you know, I was I did a placement there. I was hired there. I became the supervisor there. But I knew that I wanted more for my family and myself, so I moved to Toronto, uh, knowing that there's going to be a lot more opportunities. As I, as I quickly found out, I, I started at Native Child and Family Services of Toronto, um, you know, as an Aboriginal early child development worker. And within um, the 10 years that I was there, I was promoted six times. And throughout that time, you know, my portfolio kept expanding. And so I, I started in childcare, but I ended up working in things like housing and youth justice and seniors programs, mm. cultural programs, education, employment, um, you know, human trafficking, um, mm. all the harm reduction, those kind of went on and on. And I've learned a lot of things about um, the community and the very vulnerableness of it. But I also learned the strengths that the community has, that the lived experience is so valuable, that people have the answers and things inside them. They just need opportunities to be able to express that and those strengths and skills. And as a person who's two-spirited, you know, I see this as my role in life. I don't necessarily see that there's any other choice. Mm. This is who I am and this is what I have to do. And so, I mean, I've been doing this for almost 27 years uh, of my life. And um, as I you know, sought the nomination for the NDP to represent the community in Scarborough Southwest. This is just an extension of that because as much as I'm an Indigenous man, I'm also, you know, a person that lives in Scarborough. I'm also, you know, a Canadian. I'm also someone who, who is a human being and values, you know, all of my brothers and sisters. Uh, it's wonderful. And some of the things you just mentioned there about opportunity and, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about how you know a difference a government can make by investing in families. So um, let me ask you, as a candidate and someone who, uh, because we don't always get to hear from candidates uh, during the election, it's mostly focused on the leaders of these parties, and we hear a lot about what the leaders want to do. But but from your perspective, um, how how do you think what you want to represent, what you want to bring forward from your constituents and what you want to represent and want to put forward uh, how do you think that your leader, Jagmeet Singh, is is uh, is approachable? Do you have his ear when you want it? Well, I think that 
Uh, I've met Jagmeet a few times, and I think the thing that really drew me in was, um, you know, his passion for people. I think that uh, it was the first time that I could see myself in a leader, um, you know, years and years of leadership um, that didn't really represent, you know, diversity or people of color or people who, um, you know, had a story that really didn't have this, um, you know, planned, you know, politician lifestyle where um, I thought that, you know, that Jagmeet is going to be someone who could relate to us and, you know, relate to people in my community, relate to people who are most vulnerable, um, people who um, who live in poverty. You know, like, that's a large group of people, and that, you know, is something that's always been important to me to make sure that um, people like that really have um, choices. And I think it's, again, not about telling people what choices to make, but just giving them more choices and more options and more opportunities. And that's why uh, I feel like um, this leadership is something that I could follow. Um, and as far as, you know, leadership, I've always, you know, re respected, um, you know, the way that um, systems are built. I respect, you know, that the Canadian government is made up this way. Um, but I also know who I am, and I will be someone who will, you know, make sure that my voice is heard, the voices of the people around me. Um, I'm very very much a person who's going to always be um, physically present. I know the value of that. Uh, and I won't, I'm relentless. I, I'm a very gentle and soft soft person, but definitely I won't stop. I've been doing um, child care and uh, advocating for children my whole life, and I, I haven't stopped today, and this is not part of that. This is part of that, I mean, sorry. And I can hear that in your voice. Uh, it, there's this quiet uh, determination that I can I can hear coming through. Um, the other thing that, that you make reference to, uh, it was, and we talked about it a little bit earlier, was government investment in making a difference in families' lives. Uh, what do you think is needed from a government, any government that might be elected uh, this this October, uh, for people in need or people that need that government support? What 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 would you be looking for? Well, what I really think um, is needed is bravery. Um, you know, mm -hmm. as an Indigenous person, there's uh, seven grandfather teachings, and one of them is bravery to make choices that reflect, um, you know, the people and what they need uh, versus making choices that reflect very um, individual needs and, um, you know, the, the needs of people who are more powerful already, who already have this opportunity. I think that um, as I sit here and thinking of the things that are needed, we need to look at a person holistically, like holistic health, um, you know, the holistic needs as far as what they need spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically, um, and not just these individual kind of fixes. Um, you know, one of the first things that people talk to me about, what, what is the biggest issue, you know, uh, it is our climate. Um, and But climate can be related to everything, you know, our health, climate can be related to housing, all of these things, they're all connected. And if we just keep um, a uh, kind of a eagle-eye view of everything uh, and making sure that we realize that everything is connected and really challenge people to think differently about how, you know, certain programs that we offer children and certain opportunities we give people. Like childcare, for example, it's one of the most valuable things to invest in because when a parent and a child and a family have these opportunities, they make different choices. They have different opportunities. Their lives, the trajectory of their lives change, and it becomes a much more positive experience for them and everyone around them, for their families, for their friends, for the people that they are involved in in their communities. Well said. Now, you mentioned a few things there about the Seven Grandfathers, bravery and holistic. Um, first of all, do you think, have you seen bravery in government? 
I have seen bravery at times. I think, um, you know, I think the NDP are brave. I think there's this kind of skepticism of, you know, like, oh, they haven't they haven't done this and they have the one opportunity uh, and these types of things. And it's this kind of negative attitude of people being afraid of something. I've heard so many people going door to door saying, oh, we don't want this person or we don't want this party or we don't want this to happen. I want people to start saying, what do you want? <laughs> Vote for what you want. Vote <laughs> for hope. Vote for change. <laughs> Stop being afraid. Don't don't let people intimidate you. That's what they want. People want you to decide to make decisions on what you don't want, so that they can get in. That's mm-hmm. that's the way I've seen it. And when I stand up here today, I I remind people that, you know, no matter what, you need to get to know me and how I make decisions and my morals and my values because that's what really is going to change things about the people that you put in. And I I see that right here. I I feel like I'm a very brave person because this isn't something that's easy. This isn't easy in any way, shape, or form. I'm learning as I go. Uh, I'm really finding, you know, that I have to keep pulling the strength from other things. And it comes from these people. It comes from the door knocking. When I hear people tell me their stories about, you know, how they haven't been served right, how how they're being evicted, how, you know, they have these astronomical costs for medical medical expenses that they can't afford and how it takes away from other things, how they're isolated, how they feel very disconnected from people and not supported and that their voice isn't heard. Mm. Yeah, all of those things uh, sound very, of course, uh, important, like you're, you're mentioning. Um, so if you, if you were to ask for, for one thing, um, if if the if the NDP were elected and you you had the chance to go to Jagmeet and say this is the one thing I would like you to implement that I think would be of benefit, what would you what would you approach him on? Well, I think that um, again, it's it's not really about me. It's about what people want. Um, but I the, the wonderful thing is I've been hearing people's voices for so long. Um, what they want is what I want, and I really think. Our priority is the climate. I think, you know, we need to declare a climate emergency. I would love Doug Mead to say, you know, use the bravery to say, you know, this is the, the priority and here's how it's all connected. Um, you know, the the one thing I've heard from someone say to me, and, you know, it spoke so loudly, loudly to me, um, you know, if we keep doing what we're doing, you know, the the sun one day the sun will stop shining, uh, and the waters will stop flowing, and the earth will stop growing, uh, and we will not exist anymore. But if we stopped existing, the earth will thrive. And I think it's that relationship that we need to remember, um, the vulnerability of it, the strength of it, and you know, change you know what we're doing, and that will change the lives of people. If if we can't go and enjoy our outside anymore what will what will we have left if we can't grow food anymore what will we have left if we can't breathe clean air anymore what will we have left everything else will not matter just materialistic things the power the greed the money will not matter anymore very well said and of course that's very true uh it's getting to that point and and i like the, the idea of the holistic uh word that you used and that everything is connected and it's very true um, and and I agree uh, with you that this climate crisis is the main issue. Um, and if we looked uh, and started to take care of the climate, uh, that trickle down effect would would probably deal with a lot of uh, the other things that that are afflicting us as as a human race as well, and take care of some of those things such as maybe uh, fresh water for all. Uh, as we all know, that's an issue in many First Nation communities. Right, exactly. And you know the 
tragic thing is I remember um, being a young indigenous man, I think I was like 15, and I had to go with my family and my aunt and, you know, dig a hole in the lake and carry water. Mm. And so, you know, what where, What have we done in the last 32 years when this is still happening? Mm. We're, we're not, you know, this ideal of truth and reconciliation really baffles me that a leader, you know, could stand up beside me and say, oh, I would love to still represent this community. But there's an indigenous man standing beside them saying, I, I need the opportunity. You've had many opportunities. You've had many chances. You've done your share. Your voice has been heard. It's time to take responsibility and say, you know what? I'm good. I'm done. Let's help this person. Actually, the, the really the really disappointing thing is that, you know, more people aren't endorsing indigenous um, candidates. That are, they're not supporting them. They're saying, oh, yeah, you might not have all the skills and strengths that you need, um, but here, let me share and let me get, let me help you get to that point. Mm. That's what's really disappointing mm. in the whole concept of truth and reconciliation. Nicely said, so, Keith. Nicely said. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's where the bravery is, you know. True enough. And uh, I would I would uh, continue to to expand that to say that that in this time, uh, looking at the world in which it, it is with the climate crisis that we're in, why there is not more attention being paid to the indigenous way of living and it looked at as a way, as an example uh, of, of work at living in harmony with the planet, and uh, which, of course, we all know indigenous people did for tens of thousands of years and, um, and were able to sustain it and look at it as a living being, which Mother Earth is, of course. Yeah, I know. I remember um, when I I was just at the climate strike on Friday at Queen's Park, uh, and I was reading the signs, and some of them were very humorous, and I love the people, you know, just trying to find ways to connect, you know, like if humor does it or pop culture does it or if shame does it or if anger does it, you know, as long as it gets done, I really appreciate that. But one of the signs I read was that, you know, Indigenous people have been telling telling us this this whole time, uh, and why didn't we listen to them? Mm. And so I'm, I'm suggesting now that mm. we, we listen to them, and I'm one of those indigenous people that have those values, that have that connection. Great. You're listening to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Keith McCready. He is an NDP candidate for Scarborough West. He's also the executive director of Two-Spirited People of the First Nations. And Keith, tell me a little bit more about that position and why you decided to take on the executive directorship at the Two-Spirited People of First Nations. Well, I actually, um, uh, I actually got a new job. Um, you know, uh, I was looking for something different, so I got a new job with the city um, children's services, uh, and I was very excited and you know eager to do the role. And then at the at the same time as life would have it, I was approached by two three of people and asked to do an interview for the executive director position. I've, I've heard of the agency, but uh, I really was um, not too familiar with what they'd done. So I did some research and I asked around, and they had a lot of good you know good feedback. People were like, "Oh, they're wonderful. They do great things," but there didn't really seem to be a true understanding of what they're doing. So as I applied, um, you know. Um, I thought, you know, this is my opportunity to do something different for the community. Um, you know, being uh, two-spirited myself, I, I knew um, the challenges that some people had. But you know, and you know, in this agency, had a lot, did a lot of work, does a lot of work with people living with HIV, um, and you know, people who are at risk of HIV. And I thought, you know, this is such a community that's been stigmatized and um, discriminated against. Um, you know, 
people from the 2S LGBTQ have been, you know, have the same experience and so do indigenous people. And like, okay, you know, if I want to work with, you know, one of the most uh, vulnerable communities who need my support most, this is probably it. Uh, and it's been a really a great year. I've been there a little over a year and it's been very challenging and demanding, um, but also exciting because I see the growth and potential. Uh, I got to know a lot of the community members and tried to build relationships with uh, a lot of them. Uh, and then started talking to outside agencies and other agencies about what we could do to work together. Uh, and we built programming. And I, and all the program that was built is developed by the consultation with the community. We asked them, what do you want? What do you want us to do? Be patient. It's going to take a little time. You know, and the, the program that people wanted was culture. They want to have experiences and access to their own cultural teachings, um, cultural uh, elders and uh, knowledge keepers but also cultural arts and, you know, events. And so this is what our focus has been, and it's been really great. In the last year, we've had so many um, people come in and a lot of um, programs that are, you know, meeting the needs of the community and great feedback. Mm. Now, Keith, uh, I see that in 2002, you received a Prime Minister's Award for Excellence in Early Childhood Education for work with helping vulnerable youth as well. Oh, yes. Uh, that was... Um, I, w- I was working at a child care center that it was actually called the Memo Education Family Development Center. And, uh, you know, we were nominated because I did have a very different view of early childhood than other people. I, I instinctively knew that, you know, with all the education they gave me, that there's ways to do things differently. I saw programs and I saw people, but I had a lot of faith in children. I, I, I believe in children's, you know, ability to make their own decisions when they're informed. Uh, I know how to keep children safe. I have a lot of confidence in them, and I see them in the circle as, you know, just as valuable as anyone else. And that uh, award came out of um, my ability to think outside the box and do things, you know, very, very creatively. It, it allowed me to be um, the educator that I am by, you know, expanding uh, people's expectations, challenging people about what, you know, what safety was or how you're supposed to do things, and being being very responsive to the children's needs and kind of igniting and evoking that, you know, that spirit of, like, creativity. It, it was a really great time for me mm. to really learn so much from children. Very nice. Now, now you just said a couple of interesting things there about belief and having a belief in children to be able to make their own decisions and make decisions when they're informed. Confirmed. Now, the question I'm wondering about is when you say children, what what ages do you feel or are, are we talking about when you when you say that? Oh, well, the children that we work with uh, in that program were 0 to 12. Hmm. Um, yeah, but um, the in my work at Native Child, I worked with um, you know, prenatal to senior, and I consider children anyone uh, who's a youth, and so mm. anywhere from you know up to 25 or whatever. Mm. Um, to me, those are still children because everyone is a unique individual. We're all at different places, and some people are going to need that guidance as a child up until much older, and other people are going to you know have a lot of their own strengths and skills um, come out at an earlier age. And right. so I think we have to treat everyone unique and individual. We can't just assume that because of an age that means something. Understanding the capability, uh, Keith. One of the things you also said there was that you have a different view. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is I, I've always had the ability to kind of, um, you know, look at both sides, and I think this is where the two spirit element comes in, where we have you know, both masculine and feminine spirits. I think that. Um, I'm, I'm a very fair and diplomatic person because I don't 
speak first, I speak after, I listen to people and I think uh, I, I'm very good at being an active listener where I don't need my voice or opinion heard all the time. I've been on so many committees uh, where people just want to hear themselves and they speak and they speak and they speak. Uh, and I think my job is to listen and then speak and, and saying, here's what we forgot and here's what you're missing and here's an idea that you haven't thought of. And that's what I mean by very different. I think um, it's my ability to be patient uh, and to um, really kind of listen to the information that I'm taking and perhaps challenge people to think things differently because of those stories that I've heard all, all along. I think the, the most valuable thing I do is listen to people and their, what they have to say, uh, where they're at. There's a lot of people who have ideas and plans and things and you know what i've learned is that unless you're going to do something unless you're going to contribute your time or you know or money you know it's really irrelevant now indigenous people have the answers the community has the answers we know what we need we just need people who are going to implement that interesting you use the word listen and how you elaborated on the word listen there because uh it's something i think uh, many of us including uh uh, some of our political uh, leaders could use more of uh, that listening ability, it seems. And I recently read something that I thought was really interesting, and if I can paraphrase this correctly. It was something about we don't listen to understand anymore. We listen to just answer. We're waiting for our opportunity to answer. We're not really listening to what is being said and absorbing what's being told to us. And I thought that was really interesting, and I think it backs up what you were just saying there about that ability to really listen and learn and appreciate what that person is trying to say to you. No, right, exactly. The uh, One of the teachings I got um, was that um, we all have the answers inside us, and it's a part of our life journey to find those answers. And so when I when I talk to people about things and they have concerns or, you know, like they're really questioning something or whatever – that's why I listen, because they already know the answer. They just need some support and, you know, guidance to, to bring that out. And if someone listens and basically has, you know, taken the teachings that everyone else has given them and shares that, um, we both can learn so much. I'm a lifelong learner. I've learned all the time. I'm learning, like, going through this, you know, canvassing and campaigning. I'm learning, you know, as we sit here and talking on this phone, because it helps me reaffirm who I am. Saying these things out loud are so important. Being able to do things purposely is very important, you know, and that's kind of who I've always been. Hmm. Now, Keith, we're we're coming uh, to the end of our time, and it's been wonderful speaking with you. But I wanted to ask you if you, before we leave, have you noticed a difference in in the way uh, two spirited people have been approached, or or the the uh, the approach to two spirited people and LGBTQ uh, have been uh, accepted in the community? Uh, you know, I I definitely have. I think there's um, this place where um, even the, you know, the one thing, first thing I, I said was, you know, we can't work with other agencies and other communities until our own community has the information and has this solidarity as, you know, what a two-spirited person is. There's this identity of being two-spirited that is, you know, equated to part of the LGBT spectrum. Like, I'm a gay indigenous man, that means I'm two-spirited. For some people, that's right. There's this, uh, this concept that it's two genders, or it's a third gender, sorry. Um, you know, you're not male, you're not female, you're two-spirited. And for them, some people, that's right. But for me, being two-spirited is a role in the community. It's a place in the circle that's just as valued as anywhere else. And I said, that's where I see my two-spirit community taking that. And the indigenous community 
needs to remember and be and relearn you know the strength of each other we each have and that two spirit people belong in that circle and i see it i see that people are ready for this and it's very exciting you know, along with that, uh, there's a very interesting article that is on the Two Spirits site. And if people are interested, uh, uh, do you know which one I'm referring to there, uh, Keith? It's uh, underneath the uh, underneath the history part of the Two Spirits. Uh, and it shows an article that Two-Spirited People of the First Nations, and uh, we are part of a tradition, and there's uh, some information, and, and there's also some pictures associated with that. I found it very interesting when I saw that article there. Yeah, it's... It's just reminding people that two-spirited people have always been here since you know the dawn of time. This is not a new concept, and perhaps um, you know as much as um, two-spirited people seem to generally fit into the 2S LGBTQ spectrum, it's not necessarily a hundred percent accurate. And in, in mm-hmm. what I mean is, there are two-spirited people who are not um, who are not part of that community um, necessarily, because a straight man and a straight woman in my opinion, can be two-spirited. Um, but generally, it seems as though, from my experience, part of, part of that comes with sexuality um, and the way that we manifest that. Yeah. Mm, right. Um, Keith, so I'll just uh, let people know that if they're interested in seeing that or learning more, they can go to the Two Spirits uh, website, which is the number two, and then spirits.com, and then you can get a list of things you can go there and have a look at and uh, get more information if you're so inclined and so interested. And also, I just want to uh, to mention that we are talking with Keith McCready, and he is a candidate for NDP in Scarborough Southwest, and he's been on the phone with us to talk about uh, a number of different things, of course. We've talked about politics, we talked about the election, we talked about uh, the NDP specifically, because he is, of course, uh, involved in running with uh, for the NDP in this upcoming election. We talked about... Uh, Keith's uh, uh, upbringing to some degree and his uh, his passion about working with vulnerable children and now his uh, his position as executive director of the Two-Spirited People of the First Nations. Keith, is there anything, uh, lastly, you would like to mention just before we end our conversation? Yeah, but what I'm proud of is that I came into Two-Spirits to work with the community and when I got approached to work, um, you know, to consider the candidacy as NDP for Scarborough Southwest, I was a little, um, you know, torn about you know, where where I wanted to lead, where my path was leading. And I spoke with our board president, and they were very supportive of that. And to me, that's what community is. It's not necessarily that I'm leaving um, two spirits. I'm going to work hard as if I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to work hard as if I'm winning this election. And wherever my journey goes, that's where it's meant to be. And I feel proud that people could support that and not feel that I'm, like, picking one thing over the other because my work will always reflect in my community. And my and what I do is always going to be about the interests of my brothers and sisters and people around me. Nicely said. Nicely said, Keith. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today, and I thanks thanks thank you for your time uh, to to come on the program and share uh, not only about your your uh, political aspirations and congratulations and all the best by the way in the upcoming election. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, it would be wonderful to touch base with you again in the future. I, I think we have some uh, some interesting things there to share with the community. Uh, from your experience and from your positions, both uh, as a, a, a political person and as your executive director of the Two-Spirited People of First Nations. So it would be great to have you back on the show in the future. Sure, I would love that. Anytime. Thank great. you.
Thanks uh, once again. And we've been speaking with Keith McCready. He's an NDP candidate for Scarborough Southwest. He's also the executive director of Two-Spirited People of the First Nations. Don't go away. We will be right back on Moment of Truth and Element FM. And welcome back to Moment of Truth. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And on the line, I have... Uh, someone that was actually on the show with us once before. It's been a little while, but it's wonderful to have her back. And that is Tina House. She is a video journalist with APTN in Vancouver. And it's great to have you back on the line with us, Tina. Welcome to the show. Yes, thanks so much for having me. Glad to be back. So listen, you know, there's lots of things going on. And of course, the West Coast uh, is not uh, out of those things that are happening. There's many uh issues that are happening. We've got stuff around the pipeline. We've got things happening with this election, of course. Uh, There's other things happening. I think there's the Vancouver Film Festival that might be going on or is happening or some stuff going on there. Um, So I think we have a number of things to talk about. We certainly do. Where would you like to start? Well, I'll I'll let you decide. Well, let's start with... um, well, let's start with the election. There's been a number of uh, Indigenous candidates that have come forward that were actually, I think, uh, that, that actually came forward to speak with uh, the, the Assembly of First Nations form that took place out west in Vancouver. Yes, that's right. Yep. So what can you tell us about that? Why did they think they wanted to come forward uh, to identify? Why, what, what did they want to bring forward to the AFN? Well, I think, first of all, it was an excellent introduction to their campaign platforms in front of all of the chiefs uh, across B.C. that are affiliated with the AFN. Um, They were literally all under one roof at the time. So I think it was an excellent opportunity for them to make their presentations to, you know, introduce themselves, first of all, and let them know, you know, what type of issues that they'll be fighting for if elected. Mm. Now, uh, Tina, maybe you can can share some light on this because, you know, as we, we go across the country, of course, uh, almost every province, uh, there's different nations. Uh, they have different relationships with, uh, with both uh, the provincial and federal governments. Uh, and I'm wondering, what, what is the relationship that you would say is, is on the West Coast? Because, you know, there's some, 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 some nations here. Uh, that feel that because of the treaty associations and the treaties that were were established many years ago, that they have a nation to nation relationship, and there's not necessary. It's not necessary for them to come forward and vote because there is a treaty association and a treaty agreement. So they don't think that they wouldn't vote for another, uh, you know, like nation. However, I've also heard that the Assembly of First Nations, uh, Perry Bellegarde, has come forward and say, is to say there's this idea that he wants to bring forward of using uh, more like a, a dual citizenship approach. Now, is that, does that fall into line with anything out there that you know of, or how do people and Indigenous people view uh, this, this election? Not that I've heard, but what I've seen here on the ground, in, in, in particular in Vancouver, are Indigenous people actually leading the charge to encourage other Indigenous people to vote. So we've got people that are, you know, going along some of the reserves and door knocking and introducing them to different campaign members. Um, we've got a lot of groundswell in terms of the Indigenous vote here in BC, and I think that, you know, I think that was certainly the case in the last election as well. 
and and of course, going back to this meeting with the AFN, I understand that uh, Elizabeth May was in fact at that meeting. Yes, actually, she was in town to not only support Jody Wilson-Raybould and and lend her support completely behind her as an independent, but also to you know support the other Indigenous candidates that were there. I think there were a total of five that were on the panel that day. And, um, you know, Elizabeth did come into town for the night before because Jody Wilson-Raybould held a campaign rally with uh, Dr. Jane Philpott. So I think that the timing was perfect, that they, she came in for the rally and just so happened that there was a meeting scheduled with the Chiefs the next day. So, yeah, Elizabeth May was there. And she was the only, you know, federal leader that has um, so far come out and supported Jody in such a public manner. Now, it's interesting you mentioned that uh, Jane Philpott, uh, also running as an independent, of course, uh, back in Ontario. And, and that's interesting that, that, of course, the Green Party is, is supporting them as independents. And I remember hearing, I think it was uh, Jane Philpott, it may have may also be uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould as independents running, saying we need to have more of an independent voice in our government. Yes, yep. Now, uh, of course, Jody Wilson-Raybould had something else going on recently uh, out there, and I think you were there for that, which is her book launch. Yes, actually, I just covered that story. And, you know, she had, um, well, first of all, she sold out her book within 45 minutes of the signing. And there was a huge lineup of people that were there. And these were people, you know, not only from her riding, but people uh, that actually had, had traveled in from, you know, the next province over just to get a chance to come and meet her and congratulate her on her book. And I think that, you know, the anticipation with this book coming out Everybody was wondering, you know, exactly what it would be all about, and she certainly didn't disappoint. She she does on a lot of what she's talked about in many of her speeches, um, that being the, you know, how to implement um, Indigenous rights into the framework and into the fold of the Canadian government, how to fully implement UNDRIP, that's the United Nations for De- the Declaration for Indigenous Rights, and how to, you know, move forward in a reconciliation way that has never been done before. So she did touch on, of course, the um, the SNC-Lavalin case a bit, but her focus was mostly to, you know, just uh, further um, uh, move ahead with what she's talked about in many of her speeches so far. Yeah. Now, as we mentioned, she's running as an independent, and that riding is Vancouver Granville. Do you, have, for people that aren't familiar with the Vancouver area, how do where where is that? What's that cover? Well, if if you're new, if you're just so if you've just flown into Vancouver, you're going to hit the airport, and if you're staying at a hotel downtown, you're literally driving right through her her riding. Mm. So Vancouver Granville, Vancouver Granville is a new riding that was established in uh, the last election. Um, It's basically all of Shaughnessy. So that would be like Granville, like around West, you know, 67th onward down to, I'd say, about maybe Broadway. So that's where her her riding covers. And it's it's quite an extensive area. Um, A lot of very uh, wealthy homes are are found in Shaughnessy. A lot of non-Indigenous people live in Shaughnessy. So you know, she really, uh, you know, took this challenge and ran with it, being an Indigenous woman running for the very first time in a brand new riding in the last election. So what I've seen so far when she announced her independent um, position was that she had an awful lot of support still from those um, 
those, those constituents in her riding. Mm. And how would you say it's going at this point in time? What's your sense of, of her chances? Well, it's really hard to predict. I mean, obviously, we're just kind of right in the middle of things here. But I, I would say that the, the numbers look pretty good, but I, I'd, be, I'd be hesitating to really say that you know, she's got this thing in the bag. Yeah, of course. Now, we've been talking about Jody Wilson-Raybould and her book, and that book is called From Where I Stand. And uh, as you've heard uh, Tina just mentioned, she did have that book launch out there, and uh, it went very well selling out the books, would you say, in 45 minutes? Yeah, she sold out within 45 minutes, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, so, of course, uh, we'll be watching that uh, with interest to see uh, if, in fact, uh, her, her, her independent uh, uh, candidacy uh, comes through for her. Uh, Jane Philpott, another supporter, I guess they're very close in, in sort of supporting each other because they were, of course, both with the federal uh, uh, Liberal Party and uh, were removed and, uh, and both running as independents, one on the West Coast and one here in Ontario. That's right, yep. Now, uh, Tina, your own background as a video journalist goes back to 1999, and uh, that's when you started in TV as a videographer, but you've also produced some documentaries and uh, some feature films, and you've, they've won a number of numerous different awards at different festivals and things. How would you, uh, and you've been working for APTN for how long now? I started with APTN National News in 2007, but I would say my film and television career started in, in 1998, actually. Mm. Um, my first big project, uh, well, first of all, it actually goes even back further than that. 97, I would say, is when I first became a movie extra. And I did movie extra work for about six months here in, in the city of Vancouver and worked on all kinds of really cool projects. But, you know, honestly, throughout, I just kind of got tired of sitting in the crowd and I started paying attention to the cast and crew. And I thought, you know what, I want to do something differently. And and uh, it was just by chance that I, I came home and back then we had phone books, actual phone books that you can flip through. And I flipped through the yellow pages and came across some acting studios and I thought maybe I could be an actor, but I wasn't quite sure. So I, I called the Gastown Actors Studio, and they, they told me about an Indigenous uh, talent agency. So I thought, okay, well, I'll phone them. That sounds interesting. So I called them up and, and said, hi, I'm Tina House, and I want to come meet the owner of the company. And and they right away, they said, oh, are you related to Dakota House? And, of course, my cousin is Dakota House from north of 60. And I said, yeah, actually, that's my cousin. They, so they put the phone down, and they came back, and they said, okay, yeah, the owner will meet with you tomorrow at 1 o'clock. And I said, okay. So I, I basically went into this meeting the next day not sure what to expect. And the owner of the agency, she gave me the spiel about what they do there at the company. And after about five minutes, she looks at me, and she says, now, what do you want to do? And I just looked her dead in the eye, and I said, actually, I want to do your job. And she <laughs> laughed, and she says, oh, you want to be an agent? And I said, yes. And she said, well, do you have any office experience? And I said, no, but, you know, I'm a quick learner, and I'm great with people. And, you know, I was telling her what all the great things I could do. And uh, so she said, okay, well, thanks for coming in. Nice meeting you. And I was like, yeah, okay, nice meeting you. <laughs> and I left. And an hour later, she called me up and said, you know what, I've been thinking about it. And I was very impressed with your approach. And I'd like you to start for me working for, at my agency on Monday um, at one, starting at 10 o'clock. You're going to be our admin assistant for the summer. And I said, okay, awesome. 
So that was my foot in the door. And uh, I started working at this talent agency. Within two weeks, I was running the kids' division. And then within two months, I was running the whole agency. And I was only 19 years old. Um, I ran that company uh, for about two years. My boss at the time was, was quite sick, so she was never really there. And I had actors, extras, stunt people, photo doubles, stand-ins. I mean, I had everybody working all the time, and it was it was pretty exciting. And then I think when I was about 22 years old, that's when I kicked off my own talent agency. And so I guess you could say my, my path has been uh, pretty exciting in this crazy world of film and television, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. Well, and it's not a bad city to be in for uh, that kind of and line of work, of course. Uh, is it still known as Hollywood North? Absolutely. Well, definitely with our, you know, our dollar sitting where it is with mm. the American dollar, you know, it's, it's very convenient for the Americans to just, you know, fly up here for the day from L.A. and and work on their projects. And we've certainly got the capacity here. We've got, you know, numerous uh, award-winning uh, huge studios now that are, you know, really kind of leading the forefront in terms of technology and special effects. We have all of the crew here. We've got an amazing, diverse, beautiful location, um, you know, setting for really anything. So, yeah, absolutely, Vancouver is definitely booming once again. That's great. It's good to hear. And, of course, such a great city uh, for uh, the backgrounds that you can find out there. Uh, it's just a wonderful place to for film settings, absolutely. For sure, yeah. So let's get back to uh, reality, uh, some of the things that might be affecting uh, the 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 uh, ground uh, out west, of course, uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline. Now, you've covered a, a couple of stories on this as well. What can you tell us about the latest in terms of the, what's happening with that? Well, some interesting developments actually just happened here in the, uh, the Court of Appeals. So the Squamish First Nation were granted uh, a leave. Um, actually, six First Nations are, first of all, granted a leave uh, to basically um, talk about the environmental assessment that was given to approve the pipeline in the first place. So that's currently happening right now. We don't have any uh, dates in terms of when you know the First Nations will be able to get in there to to argue against this pipeline due to the environmental assessment that was uh, done on the pipeline the last time. But um, the Squamish Nation and the City of Vancouver just had a small win just recently um, in in trying to stop this giant of a of a pipeline. So you know, from the from the First Nations perspective here, um, not all of them, but. Certainly in the city of Vancouver, they are still steadfastly trying to stop the pipeline from happening. Um, and now their only, you know, tactic now is really in the courts. I mean, we've certainly seen, you know, from the ground up, all of the marches and the rallies and, you know, people having hunger strikes and all that kind of stuff. But I think really, you know, what's happening now is, is their strategy is to really try to, you know, showcase what they can do within the court system. Because as you know, um, it was through the courts is how they were able to stop the Northern Gateway and Bridge project. And that project was supposed to have been, in, you know, done and sewed up and, and ready to go. But, of course, the First Nations then won in the, in the court system and that killed the project. So mm. as far as what I've heard from leaders here that are steadfastly fighting against that pipeline, it's they're, they're, as far as they're concerned, it's not going to happen, but we'll just have to wait and see. 
Now, there's another side of this, you know, you mentioned First Nations. And, and then, of course, there's the relationship between Alberta and British Columbia in terms of oil passing through and getting to the coast and those kind of things. Um, there's also, you know, we hear about, about First Nations that are supporting the pipeline um, and, and those that aren't supporting it. What, what's your sense of, of all this and how it, how it, uh, how, how it paints the picture of, of what's moving forward? Well, I think that there's no question that, you know, our, our people need the work. I mean, you know, when you get into these smaller rural communities, I mean, any type of work is welcome, obviously, because of the depression with, you know, many of our, our and many of our industries that are sort of going downhill. But, you know, I think that there's a, you know, there's a valid point from each side. So, I mean, it's, it's a really tough one, really. Mm. Um, you know, it's not for me to say, well, we should do this or we should do that. I simply just cover stories from both sides of the fence. So, you know, I know that there are people that are depending on this for jobs. There are people that, you know, have their own companies, their own heavy equipment operating companies or, you know, their pipe fitters or welders, whatever they may be. There are people that, you know, are depending on this for work. So we'll have to see. But then there's others here, especially here on the coast, where they say, well, we're taking all of the risk. You know, if, if there is a massive spill in our ocean, you know, we're, we supposedly have a world-class cleanup. But we just saw a couple of years ago with a Greek shipping company that had a, a huge uh, tanker out here in the bay, in English Bay. It was called the Marathasa. And they ha- they actually had a spill on board that ship, and they spilled bunker fuel here um, within the English Bay, within the city limits of Vancouver, and it took them six hours to get out there to actually start the cleanup. And by then, you know, with the ocean currents and all that, you know, that bunker fuel had been washing up already on the North Shore and beyond. So. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of, you know, preparing and getting ready, I mean, we'll just have to see. But like any good, you know, oil spill, they say, if they can clean up 10%, well, that's a big success. But what happens to that other 90%? And we know that with bitumen, it's like tar, so it literally sinks to the bottom of the water. So how are you ever going to ever clean that up? So for us, we depend on, obviously, our fishing, our economy with people that depend on the ocean for their sustenance and tourism. So, you know, BC really is taking a lot of the risk. So it's nice that Alberta really wants us to go through, but BC really is taking the brunt of this if something disastrous would happen. Well, you know, it's also important to remember that uh, even though there are those things that you just mentioned that people rely on, uh, there's also the ecosystem that relies on the ocean and uh, the plant life and the and the, the the animals and the fish and everything else that live in the water that also would be affected. So. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, well, listen, I, I'd like to know. Um, you're always busy doing things. You, I'm sure you've got upcoming stories. What would you say you be looking forward to, or that you might be working on that you might be able to share with us about uh, what's coming up? Oh, you know, there is one other thing well, that we haven't spoken about, yeah. sorry, and that is this film that, that you did a coverage on, The Red Snow, um, and, and that sounds like a, a great little film. Yes, um, Métis filmmaker Marie Clements has been working on this for the last nine years. She's an incredible filmmaker, um, and really this film just, 
I think it's it's going to propel her career in, in a huge way. You know, she took a big risk by showcasing, you know, people in Afghanistan and how that collides with Canadian Indigenous people as well. So I really encourage people to try to seek this film out. It is screening uh, twice more here on October the 6th and October the 8th at the Vancouver International Film Festival. But definitely just Google it. Try to find it in your in your local city. And I, I guarantee that, um, you know, it's going to make a big opportunity happen for Marie Clements and her career. And, and to see some first-time actors in that film as well along with veteran actor Tantu Cardinal, who is doing absolutely incredible these days. And she's currently starring on an ABC uh, series called Stumptown, which airs on Wednesdays. So it's really nice to see up-and-coming actors paired with veteran actors like Tantu. And really, they just did a solid job with that film. Um, Last night, I hit the red carpet at the Vancouver International Film Festival to go and interview Haida Master Carver Robert Davidson. Mm. And there's a new film uh, based on his life and his his life's work in terms of environmental and environmental activism as well. So that film will be edited by this Friday, and that'll air on APTN National News then. Cool. Um, and people, uh, if anybody's interested and want to know more about that uh, Red Snow, want to get a sense of, of uh, the film, they can go to aptn.ca news and uh, look for Tina House. She's got a story up there, and you'll see a little clip of the film as well. Uh, and you can find out more. It's a very interesting story about this indigenous soldier uh, who is in uh, Afga- Afghanistan. And, and it's a, it looks great, like you said. It looks like a really good story uh, and a good film. Yeah, yep. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so, Tina, um, anything else? What's coming up? You got anything, any, any teasers for us? Well, I always have stuff coming up. Um, I'm about to uh, also, like, I've been shooting quite a bit, so I've actually got about five stories sitting there waiting to be edited right now. And certainly uh, another story, you know, that's a really important story that we all need to hear about is the fight of David Dennis. Uh, David Dennis is uh, a former uh, leader and a former activist. Um, He was the president of the United Native Nations, um, he's and also the Frank Paul Society. He has been battling a, a very a serious liver condition, so he's been waiting for a liver transplant now for for about the last year, I'd say. And so he's fighting against the fact that you know the BC Transplant Society has deemed him not worthy to get onto the list because he has to be sober for six months. So I think that you know. So far, that fight is is moving ahead. Um, Actually, they've launched a a lawsuit against the the B.C. government, the B.C. liver transplant, and nowhere has there been any evidence that shows that it's actually crucial that you need to be sober within six months of getting on this list. Mm -hmm. It's not been proven scientifically or anything like that. Since that story broke last June, I think that the the BC transplant um, officials have come out and said, "Oh, we've actually, you know, um, moved that that rule out of the way last May, so it's, it, it should clear the path for David." Mm. So right now he's still waiting to get on the list. It's a quite a tedious process, I am hearing, but we're, we want to really showcase, you know, where David's at in his life right now. They just had a beautiful celebration of life for him uh, just two nights ago. And, you know, it's amazing because normally when you have a celebration of life for somebody, they're no longer with us. Mm. 
Well, David was able to actually attend his own celebration of life, and it was really cool to see all of his friends and and family and 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 other leaders come out and support him and and just let him know that you know he's got a lot of people rooting for him and and fighting for him and and so we'll just have to see what happens. But even as you know, as sick as he is, he's still fighting for others throughout mm-hmm. his case. So it's a very interesting story. So that should also uh, come out hopefully for tomorrow. Great. We'll be looking forward to that. Tina, always a pleasure to speak with you. Very much appreciate you taking the time to do so and be on the show with us. We look forward to having you on the show again. Yes, absolutely. Anytime. Thank you. Thank you. And that is the voice of Tina House. She's a video journalist in Vancouver with the Aboriginal People's Television Network. She is Métis from BC, and it has been a pleasure to have her on the show. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Moment of Truth.